Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. We have um, Steve Luxenberg, and he's an author and journalist, and his book is called Separate, and it's the story of Plessy versus Ferguson, and it's America's journey from slavery just segregation. Uh, welcome to the show, Steve. Well, thanks very much, guys. I, I just want to chime in on the weather there. I think it's because you put all that money in Seattle into those rain barrels. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <you've> got... <laughs> That's oh. what I understand you've got a, a ton of. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, it's constantly raining all year. Uh, but I just uh, They're just not used to it when it gets a little bit colder and it stays on the ground for... You know, a couple of days. Well, where I live in in Baltimore and in Washington, where I work, we're no better. An inch of snow and there's panic. I grew up in Michigan, and we would look at an inch of snow and say, "What is anybody talking about?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I and I'm 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 from Canada, so of course I, you know, I'd wear shorts in it. I don't know, <laughs> but we're crazy. Um, so, Steve, this is quite the book. Um, now it's quite a subject and it's quite uh important today and it's very uh very part of today's culture um now this this case has been covered by other uh journalists and authors before so um what's new about the case do you think now like what made you go ahead with writing it today well if you ask anybody about the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, which is 1896, the Supreme Court, seven to one ruling that embraces the idea that separation of the races is, is, is okay. You, you'll either get a blank look when you ask them to go beyond that. 
They might say separate but equal, but not sure that that even takes place. Or they might say, oh, I know that case. It's, it's Dred Scott, if you don't tell him the name of Plessy. Uh, and so I wanted to understand the roots of racial separation in this country. I wanted to go back to the beginning. I was, I was cursed, one of my early editors in the newspaper business said, because he said on a daily deadline, Steve, your problem is you want to get to the bottom of everything, and you can't do that. <laughs> but I wanted to get to... The, I wanted to get closer to, to understanding what this case was all about, and I tell the story as parallel narratives of the people who decided the case and who argued it and who lawyered it, and the people who were the resistors, who, of course, without their legal actions, their protests, their lawsuits, there is no case to decide. So that's how the book is structured, and it covers 70 years of American history in order to understand that racial separation uh, roots that I was talking about. So what's so important about that case? I mean, it's more than 100 years ago now. So what's what, why is that important to learning about things now, and why is it so pivotal in terms of race relations in this country? Well, the, the case, as, as you probably know, separate but equal, it endorsed the idea of uh, segregation, and it spread uh, from the case the case itself wasn't really recognized at the time as the landmark that we now understand it to be because you needed to have that uh, 50 years of reverberations. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've had, you, we all know these indelible images of the 20th century, the Jim Crow era uh, that you talk about, and we have separate waiting rooms and separate bathrooms and separate water fountains and separate schools. All that separation uh, it has come off of the 19th century First, a custom uh, of doing that in the North before the Civil War in some places in public accommodations. At the dawn of the railroad age, that's where separation is born. When a couple of railroad companies in Massachusetts decide that they want to run separate cars for their white and colored passengers, as they called them back then. Mm -hmm. uh, fast forward to the 20th century, and it isn't until 1954 that... Uh, the Supreme Court reverses itself, which it rarely does, and says that that decision was wrong. They renounce Plessy, and they rule in the Brown versus Board of Education case that separate is inherently unequal. So here we have today arguments about, you know, race is part of our national conversation. I, I, my way of talking about it is we're either talking about race or we're avoiding talking about race. And all of these issues that we've had throughout the 19th century, we grapple with them today in every issue that you can think of, in immigration, in social justice, in criminal justice, in law enforcement, in police confrontations. This feeling that people of color have that the authorities are coming down on them. Uh, and so I wanted to understand why people of color felt that way. I'm not a person of color. I wanted to understand how whites how, how they feel about this, and I felt that to understand that I needed to go back to this case because this is the case that gives us the separation that occurred throughout the first half of the 20th century. Do you think in many ways that there's um, uh, that this hasn't left us yet, that there's still this idea that there should be some sort of separation and that would be, that would be a better thing? I mean, obviously, there's well, some people that believe in that, but, th but there's still a legacy going on, right? 
Well, it's, it, there's a division. You know, there are plenty of people of color who would be glad to do without white people as long as they had opportunity and equality. And there are plenty of white people who I think would be glad to do without people of color. Um, but I think the heart of the country is is that we embrace the idea of uh, equality between the races, and we embrace the notion that I was uh, I was giving a talk last night in Baltimore, and the former chief judge of the Maryland Court of Appeals, uh, Robert Bell, who is a black man, uh, was talking about his career, his legal uh, uh, cases that he had brought, and he made a, a distinction between desegregation which is to stop the segregation, let's say, of schools. That's where we often apply that. And true integration. They're not the same, really, right? I mean, you can have one without having integration. And one of the things in the 19th century that the people who were bringing these lawsuits opposing separation, that it was always thrown in their face that what, what you people want, white people would say, is you want social equality. And, you're, and we don't want to be able to mix with you and and go to parties with you and have dinner. And the people of color and their white advocates, their white allies, would say, what are you talking about? We're not talking about social equality. We're talking about political equality. We're talking about civil rights. We're talking about being able to vote. We're talking about being able to, to serve on a jury, to give testimony. All of these rights that they had been denied beforehand, but it was a way of having the argument twisted to call it a quest for social equality. But do you think that that back in that time, that was what a lot of white people were concerned about, is that we don't want mixing of the races? Oh, absolutely. And they said so uh, quite forthrightly. Uh, they had no trouble talking about race in the 19th century, often in racist ways that we cringe at today. But they talked mm -hmm. about it. Uh, and they frequently said, we don't, we don't want, uh, white people would say, I don't want people of color mixing with us. I don't want them to marry us. Uh, there's all that underlying this uh but people of color weren't seeking to have dinner with white people <laughs> they were seeking to have the same quality accommodations on railroad cars they were seeking to have their voting rights without having to prove uh all of the things that white people did not have to prove you know literacy and and uh, property and all those things so it, it wasn't a fair argument to to raise social equality it was it was a red herring really yeah. So don't. But wouldn't you say the political equality and the social equality? I mean, even if people are like, you know, I don't really want to dine together. I mean, those two things are so linked that if you're saying, you know, we have groups of people who, because of race, just aren't going to dine together, can't use the same rail cars. I mean, they're never going to be politically equal. Well, that, you know, the railroad is an interesting piece of technology. We think of it as a, as a past technology today. But in the 1830s, when they came into existence, there's nothing like a railroad car to throw a mass of humanity together and make them ride with each other, um, which meant that you might, be, you, know, you might have a wealthy uh, gentleman with his top hat sitting next to a smelly worker, uh, regardless of race. And so this was a very uh, – it was a chaotic and, uh, time with a lot of turmoil as this technology, the railroad, came into existence. Some railroad companies decided that they were not going to uh, have a mixing of passengers in a car, and they ran these separate cars, but many did not. And, it, and, the, and the free north, the free and conflicted north, as I called it, before the Civil War, where there was not slavery, um, had this kind of, uh, you know, they didn't know how they felt about the, the, the mixing of the races. Whereas in the south, 
where you had slavery and enslaved people. You know, you'd never put enslaved people in a group on a railroad car separate from their masters. You're asking for trouble if you do that. And the South lagged behind in their railroad building anyway. They didn't have many lines before the Civil War. Um, the Civil War comes, and of course, it, there's a complete revolution because the Constitution has, uh, after the Civil War, abolishes slavery in the 13th Amendment. Uh, in the 14th Amendment, uh, equal protection under the law and citizenship rights for people of color. And then the 15th Amendment is voting rights. So that's a completely different Constitution than the one we started with. So one thing I think about is that there are lots of opportunities in American history where we could have dealt with race much better than we did. And, and I would go back to uh, the founding of the country um, where they could have addressed this, um, you know, but they don't. And they allow slavery to go on written into the Constitution. The Civil War where they address it um, and they get rid of slavery, but they essentially, once the North pulls out of the South, it seems like they allow slavery to come back just in another form, you know, with the sharecropping. Um, and then, you know, this goes on, and then until the 1960s, you have a, a much bigger civil rights movement. But to me, I think the failure there was trying to get just political rights didn't solve the problem. Just being able to vote doesn't really change the community. Um, well, I'm going to disagree so with you. Okay. I'm going to disagree with you. Because when we think of the civil rights movement, we think of the 1960s as we should. It was an amazing time for that. But there was a civil rights movement in the 1860s. Mm. Congress passed three civil rights bills between 1866 and 1875. They addressed far more than political rights. The 1875 Act was a public accommodations act. It mandated equality between, without regard for color uh, in theaters, in railroad cars, in steamboats everything and the uh, first uh, the lower courts began to question its constitutionality because they thought it went beyond what the 14th amendment allowed and then the supreme court declared it to be unconstitutional in 1883 if that supreme court in 1883 had declared the civil rights act of 1875 to be constitutional then your alternative universe that you were uh, talking about that would have been the difference that's why Plessy wasn't uh, surprised 13 years later, because the civil rights cases of 83 had outlined where the court was going, and it was limiting and narrowing the definition of, of uh, the 14th Amendment and therefore of civil rights. So that's the moment. 1883 is a big part of the book, um, and it's because it has only, only one dissenter to the case. It's the same man who dissents in Plessy, John Marshall Harlan of Kentucky. So one thing I think about when it comes to disparities between race is obviously, you know, the legal system, um, but also economics, where there's a big differential in terms of, of, of income and occupation. Um, in, in some ways, the separate but equal sort of doesn't, certainly doesn't help that. Um, but I don't really think the political rights help the economic situation that much. I think on the periphery they do. Um, but I think having more integration on the economic front would have solved some of that problem and, and perhaps doing it sooner. I think you put your finger on a, a, key, a key fact here. I mean, so economics means opportunity and access to jobs and education. Uh, you mentioned before the sharecropping, and you called it uh, you know, slavery in another form. You know, there was a good book called Slavery uh, by Another Name, 
that came out about uh, 10, 12 years ago by Douglas Blackman. Uh, and he goes through how there was a kind of uh, of uh, replacement of slavery with servitude. You would be a person of color, you'd be charged with a crime, you couldn't pay the fine, and then they'd put you to work, uh, as capturing your labor in that way and not paying you a fair wage. Uh, that went on in the 1880s, 1890s, and into the, you know, pretty far into the 20th century uh, in the South. Um, you know, that's, that's what Johnson, President Johnson is talking about in 1965, is he trying to get the Civil Rights Act uh, of 64 uh, implemented and the Voting Rights Act of 65. He, he talks about coming to the starting line without the chains that you had in the past, but he said we have a long way to go because people of color don't have the education or wealth built up that allows them to compete equally with whites. So it's a starting line, but it's a starting line in which, like a staggered race around a, a track, uh, you're, you're actually starting at a, a point further back. And I think that's still happening. If you look at statistics today, which you just referenced, you see an enormous gap between people of color and pe people who are white on the economic front. Uh, so that's going to take a long time for that to become equal. How do you think we solve that problem? And I know we're pushing probably beyond beyond your book here, but um, do, do you think there's there's reparations for slavery? Do you think that that affirmative action is enough on its own that over time it will eventually correct the entirety of the problem, or do we have to have other interventions? Well, that's a very difficult, very naughty problem, which I'm glad I'm not a politician. I had, I don't have to to be part of the solution, but I'll try to answer the question in a in a, in a sense, which is to say that. Uh, you know, the reparations argument, that is, the idea of paying the, the descendants of, of people who were in slavery, uh, you know, it, it's a political non-starter. It's just not going to happen. But I understand that argument now much better after doing this book. And I understand how, how not just because of slavery, but because of what happened after slavery for uh, uh, nearly 100 years, uh, people of color were still kept from the starting line of opportunity. And so you have a situation in which, you know, we, we have affirmative action. A lot of people who are white don't like it because they think it, it's unfair. No one gives me a break. Uh, but it's not you, white person living today, who is the problem. It's the entire system for generations that has caused this inequity. Uh, I think we just have to recognize it. We have to talk about it. We have to... Uh, you know, the NFL, uh, something I know nothing about, <laughs> but when it adopts the Rooney rule in order to give people of color a chance to compete for head coaching jobs, it's recognizing that that hadn't happened before, and it needs to keep it in the forefront when we talk about head coaching jobs. Well, that's sports, and it may not seem very important, but it is important because it's a recognition that there's not equality and that we need to do something more than just, than just say so. We need to actually act on it. So I want to turn for a second and ask about some things that are perhaps more current and then see how how your work on Plessy versus Ferguson sort of feeds into that. So one of the big racial um, flare-ups that we've had lately is was in Charlottesville, and I guess it sort of started with arguments about taking down Civil War-era statues. So uh, this continues to be something that gets talked about on the news. They're going to take down, you know, a statue of, of General Lee or something like that. Um, 
how does this tie back into history? Well, you know, the, the Washington Post, where I work, um, uh, I'm an associate editor there, there, did a fascinating article about these Confederate monuments uh, and how they were part of a campaign, in part the lost cause to keep the, the spirit of the Civil War alive, the Confederacy alive, but they were also... You know, so when you see a statue to Lee, that may be different. That may be recognizing somebody who was a, a military genius, even if he was on the wrong side in the war. Uh, but these sort of statues that are are placed around, you know, I always think we need to know what, what was the re- origin of the statue itself and why was it placed there. So if you have a statue to Confederate veterans of the war placed by their family members to recognize that they died, whatever the cause... I think that's in a different category. But when you have people who had a political agenda of keeping the cause alive and they're using Lee as kind of their their stalking horse, to make a pun, about where he's off in place, which is on a horse, then I think you have a, a different issue. And you, and you should have a debate about, well, that statue doesn't need to be there forever. Or if it needs to be there, maybe it needs to be there with a plaque and an explanation. Or maybe it needs to be moved to a different place. I think that's a fer- perfectly legitimate conversation to have. Now... Where, do these, where does this come from, though? The, the Charlottesville, you, you, you started to lead into the idea of white supremacists calling themselves that, marching in Charlottesville in protest of moving these statutes or, or, or eliminating them. Well, white supremacy has been in the country from the beginning. That white people declared at the beginning that they were superior to black people. And then after the Civil War in the South, the conditions gave rise to white supremacist movements because they were, they were excluded from voting, People who had been in the Confederacy in high in the high level positions or in the government, they couldn't vote. They were angry. They were seeing people of color getting their political rights. People of color elected to legislatures and to the Congress, and they wanted to seize back the reins of power, both politically and economically. That's where the Ku Klux Klan, not called the Klan so much then, just called the Ku Klux, came from. Uh, a Confederate. Uh, officer Nathan Bedford Forrest was the originator of the Ku Klux Klan in Tennessee and in North Carolina. Uh, so when I see something like this happening in Charlottesville, what I want to do as a historian and as a journalist is to say, well, do you know where this comes from? And that the fact that it's never really died, and the fact that violence, violence is at the root of all of this between 1870 and 1950. There were, you know, 5,000, 6,000 lynching in the country. This is where this comes from. And so, yes, we should be concerned about the rise again of white supremacy. It was a terrible, shameful legacy. So. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So getting back to the statue, so this, this, you know, on the one hand, you're making a very good point that we ought to understand with each statue why it's there, and if it's there as a campaign to, you know, clearly be white supremacist, um, or as a symbol of that, then it should probably be taken down or moved. Um, but what about people who just get offended by these things, regardless of what the intent is? I mean, and, and, and I could certainly understand that. I mean, should that be reason on its own to get rid of some of these statues? Well, that's a difficult question, of course. And I, I would say that when someone gets offended in something, I hope that I don't say anything that offends people. But if it happens in a debate, I'm, I'm always interested in why the person is feeling that way. I don't take offense at the fact that they're offended. I, I want to listen. So tell me more. What's your experience been? Where are you coming from? Um, why do you feel so strongly about this? And, and if I feel differently, as I did earlier with, when, when I said I, I disagree with you, I mean, we should be able to have disagreements. I wasn't disagreeing very strongly with you. Uh, we, we should be able to have these disagreements without having shouting and anger. But, you know, remember, people of color, they were murdered. I mean, that's mm. the fact. They're, 
not the people living today, but the people, well, you could argue that they feel that way about some of the police confrontations. So you've got to understand where people are coming from, I always feel. And as a journalist, this is part of my profession. I have to, I have to go get the story. I have to listen to people, really listen to them, really hear what they're saying. And that's why I think uh, I don't have a problem with people being offended by something. I want to ask the next question, which is, well, why are you offended? Where does that come from? When we, when we go back to the Plessy case, now, do you think this is like the court's worst moment? I think it is one of the worst moments. I'm not a court historian, so I wouldn't want to put it up on a pedestal and say it's the worst. But it's definitely one of the worst moments. And yet, it's also important to note, as I did before, that it's the third civil rights case of major import that they have, have covered between 1883 and 1896. And it's not a surprise. But it's, it's one of the worst because they are essentially blind to the decision that they've written. Now, it's important to know what the, just in one sentence, what the decision was about. They ruled that under the concept, a legal concept of police powers, police powers, that's Louisiana's police powers to preserve law and order, a state responsibility, that the state of Louisiana could pass a separate car statute, that's car as in rail car, not motor car, to keep the races apart as long as they were equal. That's what the statute said. Now, the dissenter in the case said that that equality was a thin disguise that was just meant to cover up what they were trying to do, which is to keep pe people of color away from white people. But it did say that they should be equal accommodations. We, we now today regard equal accommodations as impossible if there is separation. Uh, so that's what, the, that's what the case was all about, and I think that the, the justices were blind to the fact of what was going to happen. But Justice Harlan, who was the only, he was the southerner who came from a slave holding family, and he had gone undergone this remarkable evolution. He said, here's what's going to happen. We're going to have separation spread to other things than rail cars. And he said, one day we will regard this decision as shameful as Dred Scott, which was the case before the Civil War, in which Justice Taney said that uh, black people could not be citizens whether free or enslaved. So Harlan recognized this in 1896. He said so. And he said that uh, the races in this country are, are inextricably linked together, and our destinies are together. We must have equality. And he said, any law that plants race hate, he said this in, the, in his dissent, any law that plants race hate into the, into the Constitution or any other place in state law is something that we should, we should run away from. I, I also see now... you. You sort of mentioned that, uh, you know, with this whole Northerners as well as Southerners wanted this to be, wanted the separation. Well, it started that way in the North in 1838 on, on the Eastern Railroad. When it opened for operation, it opened up with, with separate cars. Now, it was only one of three railroads that did that. The other five in the state did not. And it gave a great issue to the abolitionists who were the political activists in Massachusetts of the era, because in addition to opposing slavery, they were now going to oppose the separate cars in Massachusetts. Now, why did they care? I and mean, this is an interesting story. Abolitionists in that era were going to their night meetings 
on horseback. And it was often cold and dreary, and they didn't want to do that, and they loved the railroad trains. But, of course, there were white and black abolitionists. One of them was the famous, not yet famous, Frederick Douglass. And they were having confrontations with the conductors. And on the one hand, they were appalled. But on the other hand, they were thrilled because it was a new issue for them that they could bring to the Massachusetts legislature and ask for the banning of these separate cars. Now, the legislature didn't want to get involved in the end, although it nearly did. But the, at, with pressure from the Massachusetts legislature, the uh, three railroad lines I mentioned, they abandoned the separate cars in Massachusetts. But there were still separate cars in, in Pennsylvania. There were separation on steamboats all up and down the Great Lakes and in the Ohio River. Uh, so it, it was something that was uh, accustomed throughout the country. Um, did all of the North want it? Well, no. All of the North didn't want anything, and all of the South didn't want e everything. There was plenty of political debate. But the majority of people, the people who had the control of the legislatures, were white people, and they, they wanted it. What do you find the biggest surprise um, in doing your research was? Well, there were many surprises. I, I was surprised at how many resistance cases there were. I was surprised at the first use of Jim Crow as it applied to public transportation was in Salem, in the Salem Gazette newspaper on October 12, 1838. And they used the term as if everybody was already using it as a common practice. It, that these two drunken white sailors, that's what the story was about, how they had damaged the railroad lines in retaliation for being ejected, that initially they were asked to go to the refuse car or the Jim Crow car. And I was really surprised when I saw this. Now, I knew that, you know, that the North had endorsed separation in places, but I didn't have any idea that that term was used. And I tried to figure out why, and my best educated research guess is that the Jim Crow minstrel shows were so popular in the New England area at the time that they frequently showed up in newspaper articles in other ways. In other words, this is a Jim Crow moment, or that is a Jim Crow idea. Um, and it was often used to describe politicians who, in our terminology, were flip-floppers because they were jumping Jim Crow. They were jumping from one side of the issue to the other. So I guess it's not a surprise that they would apply it as an adjective to a railroad car. That was a big surprise to me. Um, the other big surprise was the contradictory positions of the justices. So the justice who writes the Plessy decision, Henry Billings Brown, comes from New England, is mentored by people who are in the anti-slavery camp, and yet he ends up writing this terrible decision. John Marshall Harlan is from a slaveholding family. He ends up being the dissenter. And now we, we remember Harlan, we don't remember Henry Billings Brown. So I wanted to understand the evolution of these two justices and the arcs of their lives to find out why they had ended up in the positions that they had. Because you would have expected, if you were just told their backgrounds, that they would have voted in the opposite way. Why was New Orleans so important um, to the case and to your story? Well, I'm glad you asked that, because I should have talked about it before, but we talked about it so much. So New Orleans is unlike any city in the country in the 19th century. I think you would say that it might be unlike any city in the country in the 21st century. <laughs> but New Orleans is, is a place that is uh, not like Atlanta or Savannah or Charleston, which has uh, become a home to people who were liberated from slavery, and they are, they are struggling to 
make it in the world to to get their rights. New Orleans, in contrast, has this sandwiched layer, is what I called it in the book, of free people of color who, before the Civil War, were sandwiched between people who were in slavery and the white people. And when the Americans took over New Orleans in 1803, the provisional governor came from Virginia, a guy named William Claiborne, and he was flabbergasted to find that not only were there 6,000 free people of color of various shades of the spectrum, because they were mixed race, uh, but they had a militia, and they had weapons. <laughs> and he, he actually wrote a letter to, to Madison, wrote many letters to Madison, who was Secretary of State, and to Thomas Jefferson, who was president, and said, hey, guys, I got a problem down here. I got these free people of color, and they have expectations of getting their rights, and they have weapons, and, like, what do you want me to do? Well, his letter took a, a, a month to get to Washington. It took another month to get a reply, and the reply was essentially, you're on your own, buddy. <laughs> do, do the best you can, because we're, we're up here in Washington, and, like, it takes forever to get a letter, so we can't do much for you. Um, but Claiborne recognized that he had a political problem because they had, they had status, but he also had a problem because he wasn't from there and he couldn't rule as a dictator. Um, so he needed to be to tread carefully, which he did, and they they maintained their status. And then throughout the century, there's critical moments. At the Battle of New Orleans in 1814, there's an in, there are two regiments of free people of color who are fighting for the American side. Afterwards, uh, they want some rights that they were promised by General Jackson. In 1863, when Fed, uh, New Orleans is under federal occupation now, because it was so important to hold that port and the access to the Mississippi River that they put all of their forces into taking the city. And the, and the free people of color recognized the opportunity, and they agitate. They have political meetings. They have petitions. They ask the provisional governor, uh, another provisional governor, for their rights. And when they don't get any satisfaction, they send two guys off to Washington to plead their case with Lincoln. And Lincoln is very sympathetic. But he says, you know, i got a war to win. This is a political problem. We'll deal with this after the war. And then he's assassinated. And actually his last speech, his very last speech, three days before his assassination, from the balcony of the White House, he says, I, I think we should give some political rights to the mixed-race people of New Orleans. Uh, so it was, a, it was a live issue. By 1890, the descendants of all of those people that we've been talking about, they are a wealthier, educated mixed-race group. A lot, a lot of them speak French. A lot of them have French last names. And they are a very unhappy lot. And they decide that they're not going to allow this separate car act to go into existence without a fight. And so they arrange a te test case. They announce it in the newspaper that they, that they control the New Orleans Crusader. And we're going to bring a test case uh, and we're going to try to get to the Supreme Court. And, you know, like a lot of, a lot of announcements, it <laughs> They, they screw around for a while and they don't do it. Uh, but it takes about a year for them to get organized, and then they do bring a test case. And they ask uh, the, the lawyer that they have from the, from the North, Albion Turgey, the most famous white advocate for civil rights in America, he asks them to find, him, find them a, uh, themselves a fair-skinned man who could pass for white. Because he wants to argue that if you can't tell somebody's race, without asking them, then how the heck are you going to separate them in the railroad cars? And so 
first uh, there's a there's a uh, an earlier there's a predecessor to Homer Plessy, but Homer Plessy is uh, as I say in the book is fair skinned enough to cause confusion, and confusion is what they wanted to cause. They wanted to argue the law was unenforceable. Hmm. So that's sort of interesting to me that that would be the grounds on which they would challenge it is the enforceability rather than the underlying idea that separate can't possibly be equal. So why would they well, why you, would he have chosen that route at that time? Well, Turgey uh said in a letter to his co-counsel down in, in New Orleans that his experience, he had very little experience before the Supreme Court, but his experience told him that it was better to throw too many arguments at them than not enough. Now, I think this is not actually a very good strategy, but he didn't just throw that argument about it's unenforceable. He threw about a dozen arguments at them um, to use the, the cliche, you know, we're going to throw whatever sticks. Now, why would he do that? Well, last night I referred to this event, and I was in conversation with this judge, and he said exactly what I thought, because they wanted to win. <laughs> and they were willing to win in almost any way possible. Now, mm. That's not a very good strategy in the end, because sometimes you end up with bad law when you plead a bad argument. Uh, and they had a couple of bad arguments that if they had if they had won, I think that would have created bad law in another way. Uh, but Turgeon has been criticized by, by constitutional scholars and legal historians for not arguing the, that that separate could not be equal, for not arguing that the railroad cars were not identical that they weren't maintained as well, that they weren't as comfortable, etc. And he didn't argue that because he didn't want to make that, he wanted to make the case um, on the grounds of the 13th and the 14th Amendment, and he wanted the court to embrace the notion that this was treating black people in an inferior way. And he wasn't worried so much about the quality of the, of the cars, because he didn't want them to say, he was worried that they were going to say, well, we've inspected these cars, not the Supreme Court itself, but earlier in the case, and they look equal to us, end of case. They're equal. Hmm. He didn't want that. <laughs> and he didn't, think the, he didn't think the Supreme Court would buy the argument that um, separate is inherently unequal. I don't think he phrased it that way. That's the way we phrase it now, because the Supreme Court in 54 used it in Brown versus Board of Education. But as best as I could tell, I think he was, he was nervous about that argument. One of the few that he was nervous about, actually. <laughs> So is that was that the reasoning for Brown? Was that was that that was the crux of the case? Is that you know separate can't be equal? You have to integrate. And, and also that in, every, in their experience, it told them that despite these protestations of equality, separate was never equal. It, it was always some difference. So in the case of Brown, which was a schools case, there was ample testimony brought by Thurgood Marshall and the NAA. CP Legal Defense Fund that these that the schools were not equal, that the resources put into them were not equal, that the quality of the instruction wasn't equal, that the quality of the the uh, the facilities weren't equal, and that the government was responsible for that. But see here in the in the in Louisiana we have the railroad being responsible for it, so it was a different ground on which they were arguing when they were talking about the schools. It's easier to bring a case when the government is in, the government is the party that's involved, because we accept that the government has the responsibility to provide equality. They hadn't yet really accepted that the railroad had responsibility. Okay. So, what do you think the key 
reason is for us to go back to this case? Like, how is it going to help us out today? Well, I, I just think that because race is such a part of our national conversation, that if this book can help people on any side of the question understand that there is this history, that um, I'm going to boil it down to a soundbite, racial progress in this country has never come easily or swiftly. And if we understand that that's always been the case, maybe it gives people some better understanding about why we're still talking about it, why these issues still exist, we shouldn't be afraid of our past. We should understand it, and we should go on from there and not turn away from this discussion because we're, you know, in, in the North in the 1890s, one of the things that I, I certainly learned was that they were kind of exhausted by the race question. They were tired of the South doing these things that they didn't think very much of, and they, they kind of washed their hands of it. Not the Supreme Court. That's not exactly how they decided it, but they were part of that discussion too, which is, you know, you people down south, you keep doing these things. Like we're not going to, we're not going to do that in the north, but we're washing our hands of you. I'm being a little bit facetious here, um, <laughs> but I think that that they that that being exhausted by the race question. I mean, can you imagine having conferences in the 1890s in which the title of the conference was "What to Do About the Negro Question"? Those were conferences that were held. How would you like to be a member of a group of people in which you're a problem that needs to be solved? <laughs> I mean, that's just untenable, right? But today, there are many people of color who feel that white people still, still see them as a problem to be solved. Why can't we be done with this race issue? Mm. We're not done with it because there's not true equality. So do you think we will ever get there? Is, is true equality something that we can, that we can hit or... or is there at best some sort of approximation? Well, I wish I understood the, the answer to that question. I, I can only be an optimist, which is what I usually am, and say that I think we can get there by making keep, if we keep making progress. Uh, and, I want, and I want to hope that we can get there. Uh, are we going to get there? Our history tells us it's going to be neither swift nor easy. Mm. Well... On that note, now do you have a website that people can get a hold of you? They absolutely can. They can go to steveluxenberg.com. That's Luxenberg with an N, like Nancy, L-U-X-E-N-B-E-R-G. And there you will find my previous book as well, but also more information about my research into the separate book. Uh, and I do have a contact there, and, and uh, I'd love to hear from people. I do answer my email. Not always swiftly or easily, but I do answer it. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I, I would, I'd love to hear from readers. Okay, and, and we, the book we, is available we, everywhere. It it just came out this week. Um, it's available everywhere, online, of course, but also in your local bookstore. And if you can't afford the book, please go to your library. I love libraries. Libraries are what authors they, they give a space for authors' books to live on past the publication date. Oh, for sure. Now, we're going to have your book um, posted on our website as well, so people listening from the website can just do one click and buy the book. And it's That's been, great. It's been a pleasure, and uh, it's been a great conversation. Thank you very much, Steve Luxenberg. Thank you very much for having me. Great questions. 
To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www. Houseofmystery.com Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.